What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show, coming at you live from the Blue Wire studio in the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas during F1 week, and we have a special episode for you today. I'm here with Renato Biznani. Is that close enough? Close enough. Yeah, to, to my right here, the global head of marketing and communications at Aston Martin, and then Jefferson Slack all the way down the line here, which is a little bit easier to say, so I appreciate that, who is the managing director of Aston Martin's Formula One team. Thank you guys so much for doing this. First and foremost, I want to talk about a lot of stuff today. This podcast for me is an awesome space because I get to learn about a bunch of different things that I may not have known about before and talk to interesting people like you guys. So I want to specifically talk about how you guys are selling cars to Formula One, how the team's doing, how the sport has changed. So we'll go through all of that. But where I want to start with is the team recently came back into Formula One a few years ago. So Jefferson, maybe talk to us a little bit about why Aston Martin ended up doing that and how it's gone so far over the last few years. Okay. Well, we have a really ambitious owner, a guy named Lawrence Stroll, who made his money in the fashion business and understands brands. Ambitious is is a nice way to put it, I would say. Have you met Lawrence? I haven't met him, but I've, I've read and he's, listened to a bunch of his interviews. He's a, he's a force of nature. Yeah. But Lawrence is also a genius in a way and, and seeing things that seem obvious afterwards, but I think obviously they're not that obvious to most people. Uh, he has a son who's a racer and he had a chance to buy a team out of bankruptcy called Force India in 2018. He did that. So now he owned a Formula One team and he put a placeholder brand called Racing Point in there. But he knew as a brand guy that wasn't going to work. The most iconic British motor brand is Aston Martin. Mm -hmm. So it took him a couple of years. He ultimately did, was able to do that. So he not only was able to put a relationship between Racing Point, the Formula One team and Aston Martin Lagunda, the publicly listed business, he also ended up investing in essentially buying control of AML and becoming the executive chairman. So what started is, hey, I'd like to do this, ended up with Lawrence with both feet into it. So, you know, Renato and I are really in a lot of ways colleagues, although separate businesses formally. And I think I, I think it's one of been one of the great success stories in sports. I mean, I think as we were talking earlier on the team side, we went from a name that meant nothing by purpose to one of the greatest brands. And I think we all intuitively knew how big it was, but I had no idea when I started the job what that brand would do for us. It is extraordinary, the love that people have for the Aston Martin brand. And I think it's been, and Renato can uh, weigh in, ideal for us as a team because that's who we are. Our whole identity, everything from our guest experiences, our suites, the way we conduct ourselves, our Brit, is all done as Aston Martin. So, that was Lawrence's vision. He's now realized that. I, I know from our standpoint, again, it's uh, it's the essence of who we are. Now, we have some different marketing approaches in the sense that we as a Formula One team can reach a much wider funnel. You know, somebody might buy a $15 cap and be an Aston Martin fan. And we have young kids that are Aston They're not an Aston Martin customer today. They could be down the road or just me that they aspire, just like a Ferrari fan would aspire to wear a Ferrari cap. So uh, we get a wider funnel and then it gets to Renato and his organization. And how do you take that interest and bring that down so that it helps them sell more cars? So one of the things that I'm curious about, if you could just explain the scale of, of that fan base that you're talking about, right? Not even necessarily just Aston Martin, but Formula One in general. The sport's obviously grown a lot in the United States over the last few years, but I always tell people it's like, 20 to 25 Super Bowls a year, right? Like it's it's just massive events, globally recognized, you're all over the world, and it's just a different scale than anything we really have here. I'm an American like you, Joe, and we didn't grow up with this sport. And in some ways, I think that makes you appreciate it even more. It is extraordinary what the sport has become. And there's some reasons that we can get into 
why many of whom have already, you know, are generally talked about. It, it's about 1.5, uh, 1.4 billion fans annually watching the race. We have 380 million fans with our team. Our combined with Aston Martin, our drivers is about 30 or 40 million followers. So it's a global sport that, as you say, it travels and you have these 20, this year, say 22 Super Bowls, next year, 24 Super Bowls. So you can engage at a local level around the world. And that's very different than the NFL or Premier League football or other sports. You know, I think the only thing analogous, but it's on a quadrennial basis, is the World Cup. You add to that the extraordinary marketing and demographic shift with things like Drive to Survive. Every day, you saw Marky Mark the other day when they were having the golf tournament. Hey, how'd you get into it? He's a kid from Boston like me. My daughter. Here's my daughter. She's probably 18 years old or something. She loves Formula One. And I met a woman, Sarah Eisen, from CNBC the other day. How'd you get into it? My four and five-year-old love it. We watch every race together. So you wouldn't have heard that four or five years ago. So I think it's not just the sport is growing, especially in the United States, but it's the younger demographic, which then leads to more eyeballs, whether it's streaming or linear television, more partners coming in because, you know, they want to reach that group. So sports did an incredible job. And, you know, Renato and our beneficiaries that some of we've had something to do with in terms of the shaping of the team and the relationship with Aston Martin and what Renato's doing with the road car company. But some of that has just been we've been following trends that are bigger trends that Liberty's been doing or society's been doing or the pandemic that encouraged tech adoption. Formula One is perfect for tech companies. We will talk about later in terms of how many U.S. big tech companies have been coming into the sport. So it's, it's, a, it's a magical moment for Formula One. Yeah. Renato, one of the things he said that I thought was really interesting was the idea that there's now linkage between Aston Martin, the Formula One team, and Aston Martin, the brand, which is something I've always really thought about is like, in my mind, it never really made sense to have a brand that you couldn't really sell something through, right? Like the marketing is really the whole point of Formula One in my mind. How is that uh, for the road car company? Like, how does that benefit you guys? And what what access have you seen that Formula One has given you on a marketing scale? You know, it's a very authentic link, first of all, because uh, Aston Martin, which is a 110-year-old or year young brand this year, has uh, very strong roots in racing. We were actually one of the very few brands uh, in, uh, in automotive that are able to claim that we were first born on track. And then we started selling cars commercially. So the return of, of Aston Martin to, to Formula One is, is very authentic and it links very deeply into our racing heritage and legacy. And that is also a core component of our overall strategy and this uh, phenomenal turnaround that Lawrence has initiated three years ago when he took ownership of the brand has placed the Formula One back at the center of our strategic approach moving forward. This is not only from a marketing perspective, because it's a phenomenal platform that allows us to engage with customers uh, in 24 different locations around the world every other two weeks and provide a number of parallel activities and um, uh, activations around. But also it infuses the brand with uh, the performance characteristics and credentials, which we are so keen on bringing back to Aston Martin as a brand. We've always been known for making very beautiful cars with exquisite craftsmanship. And we really want to add to that this performance level. And Formula One enables us to do that. Again, in an authentic way, because it's not just a marketing approach, but there is a, a very strong, credible technology transfer program that filters from the F1 division 
down to the Aston Martin road car division. This is also through the Aston Martin Performance Technologies Department, through the, the, the engineers that work in that division. They work with our engineers and work on, uh, on, on very specific products moving forward in areas like aerodynamics, materials, vehicle dynamics. That's very important and allows us to level up the technology and innovation that we can uh, derive from uh, Formula One. So before we started this interview, I wrote down a couple of things because I remember hearing these and they, they just blew my mind from, you know, a, a number standpoint, which was number one, you guys had some promotional material around the race and it said that 21% of all paddock guests ended up buying an Aston Martin last year, which, you know, 21% to some people may not seem like a lot, but that seems like a lot to me considering the prices of the cars and so forth. Lawrence Stroll was also at a Financial Times event, I believe earlier this year or last year, and said two stats. He said that 70% of the sales, he believes, are from the F1 team, I'm assuming there's some kind of way to track that. And then number two, he said that the company, Aston Martin, has sold over 300 of the F1 edition cars that are the safety car, which if you multiply that by the price, that's like $60 million in sales. That seems like a lot of, a lot of impact that Formula One would have on the brand right? 70% of the sales. I, I mean, we don't need to get in the nitty gritty of it, but like, how are we tracking that? Is that accurate? Is that, you know? It is accurate. Absolutely. Actually, the Vantage F1 edition has seen 72% new customers. And that is thanks to not only the ability for us to create a product with the F1 edition badge with added levels of performance, but also marketing that to the audience base that travels uh, with uh, the F1 circus around the world. Actually, Aston Martin has enjoyed over the past two, three years, uh, 60% new customers. And, you know, majority of that, we are uh, very certain come from the F1 effect. So there's a very tangible impact that Formula One is having on our, on our sales. Yeah. Jefferson, one of the things that I've been really interested in over the last few years is the economics of the sport in general, right? They've changed a lot. As someone who, you know, used to watch and say, there was a big gap between the best teams and the worst teams simply because they were just spending more money, right? And they were able to go do things technology-wise, performance-wise, or, you know, product-wise to be able to set themselves apart. Part of that has changed, I would say, maybe not all of it, but part of it has changed with the cost cap. That has also changed probably the dynamic of the way that you guys interact with the road car business because it doesn't have to be this huge loss leader now where you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars and not able to see an impact on that. Is it accurate to say that that's had a positive impact on the relationship between the, you know, the two parts of Aston Martin, or do you still think that maybe some things can be done on the economic side to make Formula One longstanding a better business? Well, you said a lot there. So yeah. kind of take your time. Well, I kind of start from back part. Structurally, Renato's, and we have a long-term contract and a licensing arrangement allows us the rights to call ourselves because he owns the, the IP and the trademark. Yeah, I think it's that's important, actually. To, to so this is different than a Ferrari in yeah. our situation. So from a business structural standpoint, we have a contract. He pays the money to the team. He's not responsible whether the team loses money, makes money. So now uh, we have the same ownership and uh, we have a guy who doesn't like to lose money and hasn't made his money by losing money. So we don't want to lose money. But I'm just saying from that standpoint, that wouldn't be an issue between the road car company and, and the Formula One team. What I think is very interesting is, you know, the adage is a few years ago, you could have bought a team for a dollar because it was just a great way if you were a billionaire to become a millionaire for the exact reasons you just said, Joe. I think the general popularity of sport, the way that Bernie Ecclestone managed it, the way the money was split, you know, like all 
sports organizations, you have the center, which could be NFL and you have the teams, or in this case, it's Formula One management and you have the teams and how do you divide up the money? This is all thing of soccer. This is basic discussions about sports business. And at the time, it was much skewed to the bigger teams. So, you know, th that changed. And then you had budget cap, fundamental. Why is the NFL such a great business? Because they have a direct hard link between revenues and salaries. So this isn't exactly like that. And it's definitely a soft cap. And you're not just spending, I think it's $135 million. We spend a lot more than that. But it's real. And the teams are modifying their behavior. So it's done exactly what you said. It's going to, over time, make it more competitive. So now, take Mercedes, best, most successful teams with lots of resources. They've gotten it wrong since the arrow changes in 22, but they can't just throw money out and change because they have a limit to what they can spend. And there are people that abide by the book. So it is fundamentally changing the sport. Add to that all the popularity and the growth that we talked about before and the great management of liberty and the EBITDA increases from them from their standpoint, that's more money going to the teams. And now, and as you saw, and we had a transaction announced uh, the other day with Arctos, these teams, in my view, are now treated as franchises similar to U.S.-based franchises at franchise-like multiples. There's only 10 of them, and some of them you can't even buy. They're not, wouldn't be for sale. Or Ferrari would not sell a piece of its Formula One team. It's part of the whole Ferrari organization, publicly listed business. Mercedes is pretty much done. McLaren, so it's been a complete virtuous circle around that, which in the case of Lawrence, who bought a team inexpensively, put a lot of money into it because it was losing and we had to grow. It was investing in the team and the campus and people. It gotten to the point where we'll be a bit of positive. That's only going to increase. Our costs are going to not increase. Our revenues will increase. Uh, so it's starting to become a really good business to be an owner in the, of something that was a very, very bad business to be an owner. Are these teams profitable yet? Yes. All some of them or some? Not, I mean, I don't have a view to all of them. I don't have the financial data of all the teams. Teams like Mercedes that publish their data, they're British-based companies, they have to publish it. At Companies House are very profitable. We are not, we're just becoming profitable, but there's a reason behind it. There's an investment. Well, the, the uh, one thing we didn't talk about yet was the factory that's being built, which is, I follow you guys on your YouTube channel, and they like to post updates of, of the building and the structures. And, you know, one building is up, but I think there's going to be three. And it looks like the second one is now being built, maybe. But I imagine it's not a cheap investment. No, but it's it's an extraordinary thing. It's uh, actually might up be end up being four or five buildings. Imagine in the NFL, nobody built a new stadium since 2004. That's what we've done. The first new campus technology center built in Formula One since 2004, including, you know, because you're following F1, a wind tunnel, which most people won't get wind tunnel. What do you do? You blow some wind around. Or it's $100 million. But it's everything in Formula One because we're all about aerodynamics. So it's game-changing. It's like having the, the best training center or the best training staff for a football team to understand players or the best coaches. That's fundamental for us. So these are all the tools that we're putting into place to be competitive with these great top teams that have had a great history and have been doing this for years. Yeah. Renato, one of the things that I remember reading a few years ago was, it's obviously a different team in Mercedes, but when Mercedes was was quite frankly dominating the sport for a number of years, I remember reading on their annual reports, right, their public finances, they would always quote, the TV minutes that they were on time during the race, like their TV share, I think they called it, right? It was like we had, you know- Sure voice. Yeah, we had like 25, 30, 40% or whatever it was of the whole year, our car was on television because we were winning races. 
Is that something that you guys have noticed? You know, obviously the team was performing extremely well at the beginning of the year and has done better overall for the last few years. But is that something that you guys have noticed an uptick in, in not only interest in the brand, but, you know, tracking those minutes and realizing that it's impacting the road car business as well? Absolutely. And it's also linked to the increased performance that the team has uh, shown throughout this season compared to last season in what is effectively the third year of, uh, of the uh, team's uh, return to Formula One. Uh, we see that through increased coverage of, uh, of, of the drivers, the onboard footage, uh, the, the ability we also have to display our name or some of our product's name. And that's a phenomenal source of, of exposure for us that we can then leverage and amplify on uh, you know, our own channels as well. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. The Las Vegas GP is brand new, right? This is the first year. There's been a lot of opinions on the race, right? Like some people hate it. Some people love it. Some people think that it's too much entertainment. Some people think it's not enough racing, vice versa. Where do you guys stand on this race specifically, but more importantly, what Liberty has done to the sport? I, I think um, I worked in European football for a long time. If you want to look at kind of the tectonic plates here, you have a, a lot of a traditional sport. This is, was really a European sport. If you go back 15, 23 years, the most of the races, if not all, were in Europe. They had 14 races, Italians, British Brazilians love the sport it's in their DNA, but very traditional. And this is the way that we do it. The problem in, in the modern world, you know, you've got a lot of choices if you're a young person for entertainment and sports, you got to figure out ways to reach them, but it's always hard to change some traditions and you got to figure out how far to go. You want to go too far. And I saw that in football, European football, long discussions you could have on that and the changes that people wanted to try and make. So you have to understand the history and the tradition of the sport but still innovate. And I think you have to really commend Liberty for that. I think they've done, a, they started with the basics and they started with cost cap, better distribution of the money so that teams could be more viable. There's more competition, better regulations, getting the U.S. market, series of really good strategic steps. The next step is to become a promoter and say, hey, let's do something different and let's bring in a bunch of entertainment. And it's risky, and it was risky last night and showed that, you know, sometimes these things don't work as well as you want. But I think you have to take your hat off to them trying to change some traditional, but maybe not go too far. Of course, if you're a real aficionado, you still want to have that straight. And we have that debate, for instance, to do sprint weekends or not sprint weekends. So there's a number of things with it. But I think Liberty's been an amazing operator. I think Bernie was this incredible entrepreneur, but not a value creator, an entertainer, a builder that along the lines of a David Stern or an NBA, these guys are, they get it. And there you're going to risk and sometimes you're not going to get it all right, but you're at least trying. And I think you have to take, give them credit. And that's what you need to do because, you know, one question for Formula One in this moment of boom is fans are fickle. And if you're just a fashion next year, it'll be, it'll be pickleball yeah, or something. So you got to engage and you got to engage the fans on terms that matters to them. How do you do that? How do you make them feel a part of it? Well, you need to do these types of things to do that. So you're going to have traditionalists that are frustrated and you're going to have screw ups a bit like last night. There's no question. So, but if you don't do that, in my opinion, long-term, the sport will do this. And it was doing that, you know, the demographics were aging if you go back four or five years ago. So if they don't do that, the sport will stagnate and that's not good for anyone, but you're going to, you're going to have some disruption. And it's going to be difficult for some people that don't want to change. I think to build on that, you just have to look at some of the, 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 the recent stats. Formula One is arguably the fastest growing sport globally. If you look at their 
TV broadcast deals, there are social media figures, uh, the effect that Drive um, to Survive Netflix show has had uh, just unbelievable testament to the journey that Liberty Media and, and, and Stefano Domenicali, the, the, the president and CEO of uh, Formula One Group are on. And I think what they've done here in Vegas is, uh, is phenomenal. We will surely forget come Saturday at the end of the race, the, the incident that happened during um, the free practice session one on, uh, on, on Thursday. For us as Aston Martin, we, we just have to jump on, on this high third race in, in US in Vegas, especially a street circuit that allows that closer proximity with the fans, which you don't normally get at traditional circuits. That's the beauty. Street racing comes with more challenges, of course, but that proximity with the audience, that engagement that you're able to offer them, bringing them closer to the sport is, is vital. And, and for us as a brand, from a business standpoint, U.S. represents about 30% of our sales, where we have our largest community of customers. So we're delighted to, to, to see Vegas return on the, on the map. And it's, it's a great innovative event. And we've, we've really built on that and tied into you know, our experiential content-led marketing strategy as a whole and uh, leveraged every single touch point that we could to favor that closer interaction with our customers that we're bringing here. Yeah, I have to be careful because I don't want to go on rants about this stuff, but I get asked all the time about liberty and kind of the ruining the sport and all of that stuff. And I think that generally speaking, I think they've done a phenomenal job. When you really look at where the sport was and where it's now at today, one of the stories I always like to use is the quote that Bernie had in, uh, I forget it was a magazine a number of years ago, but about social media and how he didn't care about it. And, you know, he said, if you want Disney or whatever, you go over there and we like Rolexes and all this stuff. And, you know, he didn't see any value in it. And I think it's just a perfect picture of, of the difference between then and now with, you know, Drive to Survive and everything else that is happening. And, you know, when Liberty comes into this and they buy the business for whatever amount of money, one of the things, Jefferson, that you mentioned that I, that I agree with is like the U.S. was always going to be an important market for Formula One, right? If you look at the U.S. sports landscape today, one of the, one of the stats that I always love to throw out there is the NFL, the Premier League is bigger, right? Soccer is bigger internationally from a pure viewership standpoint, number of fans, everything like that. The NFL makes about $20 billion a year in revenue, $20 billion a year. That, for context, that's more than the Premier League, Bundesliga, Serie A, La Liga, and League One, the five biggest soccer leagues in the world combined. <laughs> that's more money than all five of those combined. And the reason is because they have the economics to do it, obviously underlying, but the U.S. is also the world's biggest economy. They can monetize sports assets really well. So Liberty Media comes in, and now they build this audience here in the United States through Drive to Survive. They go from one races to three races. And I think Las Vegas has the opportunity, it, you know, it has to prove itself to some degree, but it has the opportunity to become like this, you know, stake in the ground race in the United States to prove that Formula One can be like this global, huge sport that's going to continue to grow over time. The other thing I would say about that is the age of the fans. And one of the things that I wrote about the other day was Formula One, their average fan age now is 32 years old, 32 years old, which is significantly younger than not only it was, but every other, you know, major sports league here in the United States. Absolutely. On, on our side, we're, we're seeing uh, a younger demographic come to, to buy Aston Martins. Uh, we, we average about 54 on a global base, but recently in the past uh, year and a half, we've seen um, two interesting stats. The, the, the first is about two to three years younger in terms of demographic. Some models that we sell are then very polarizing. We sell some models to even 40-year-olds, of course, some others to maybe 60-year-olds. 
Uh, and the second interesting stat is uh, the uh, 6% higher female customer base. That's probably attributable to Formula One too, right? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's testament to what you were just saying. And again, going back to you know the the, the value creation of of Formula One as a whole, the the, the much stronger openness to social media and, and 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 more channels. You know, a brand, any brand, ultimately is the connection between the the product and how they facilitate, leverage, amplify that is through storytelling, right? You couldn't expect that in the Bernie yeah. age, and that has changed a lot. And through social media, through everything that we've said before. They were able to build on these fantastic stories and especially work a lot on building the profiles of the, of the drivers because that in sport we know is ultimately what fans really want, even more than the brands or the teams involved. Players, uh, the drivers are always the stars of the show and, and Drive to Survive probably has helped a lot in doing so, especially in a market like US. Yeah, definitely. All right, a couple questions to end here, more rapid fire style. Favorite race on the count? I've worked many, many years in Formula One before uh, switching to the automotive side, and um, I've always enjoyed the, the Singapore Grand Prix. It was probably one of the first night races, great atmosphere, and uh, a street circuit. So that's one of my favorite. That's a big party, though, right? Big parties as well. <laughs> yeah. Big parties. In- Renato, I mean, I can't believe as an American I'm saying this, but I would say Monza. Because the Tifosi, I mean, it's hard to say because you know, it's Ferrari's our competitor, but in terms of passion for the sport and understanding the sport, you drive to the race and the fans are going crazy. It's an historic circuit. You know, you're in near Milan, one of the world's great cities. It's September. The weather's fantastic. It's a classic. It's been on the, it's been on the calendar for many years. So I'd have to say Monza. The, the other one that you really enjoy, I really enjoy is Austin. Last year, we're not there at 440,000 people, you know, guys got into the pickup trucks. I mean, it's Texas and they're loving Formula One. And you've got the the start line goes up the hill and you go to this left turn and there's fans up there. And it's just an extraordinary spot when you're staying on the grid before the race. Those are two great races, not just historic tracks, maybe less Austin, but the passion of the fans and, you know, hearing the screams and that that's what you really feel. That's what sports is, that emotion of the live event. Yeah. I always tell a funny story that Mo- I've been to Monza. My wife and I went to Monza last year and it was probably my favorite sporting event I've ever been to. Okay. It was amazing, you know, everyone coming on the track afterwards. Yeah. It's awesome. And I was uh, able to, we got married in the summer and I delayed the honeymoon a few months, <laughs> which was, which was, uh, was an F1. yeah, which was, which was to put that, you know, we said, we used to be married. Yeah. Fortunately, she, uh, she is a formula one fan too. So yeah, that works for me. Monza has a unique podium position also, it does, which yeah. overlooks directly the track. Yeah. And at the end, when they allow all of the spectators in yeah. provides for a unique yeah, they, they've, you know, had their troubles there and stuff. But in 2019, I think it was when Charles won. I imagine that was something with, you know, everyone underneath and him standing on top of them, which is. We're, we're not talking about that. <laughs> all right. Next question, though. Best Formula One driver of all time? Fernando Alonso. Why do you think that? Because his ability to um, read any given moment of a race, understand the what others are doing on track compared to what you should be doing, understand the, you know, the, the tire performance, which is very technical. We won't get into that, but it's, it's hugely important factor in Formula One. When to push, when not to push and be more conservative is like nothing, at least I've seen in the past 20 years. There's obviously a lot of other fantastic drivers, but Fernando, I believe, is the most complete driver. And if you look at 
where he is now in his career at 42. You talk about Fernando's being the, the new news of Formula One this year, right? With uh, also Aston Martin's return to, to podiums, having been eight times on the podium this season with him. His hunger for success and victory is uh, beyond comparison. Well, I think when you do these things, you are obviously colored a bit when you know somebody. And I know Fernando and uh, everything Renato says is absolutely true. He's been incredible for this year. But after Fernando, to me, and a lot of his sentiment is probably Ayrton Senna. When you watch what he did, you know, in the rain and it over the weaker car and immediately that, that competitiveness and the people that worked with him, he was just fastidious about everything. He was just focused on winning. And there's a romanticism, obviously Schumacher, you can't forget Michael, but anyway, the, the, after Fernando. Yeah, there's a few people that you could kind of. Well, I mean, you'd have to see Lewis. I mean, you just look at that. And, uh, you know, we had a guy, Sebastian Vettel, obviously fantastic. But part of it is, you know, not to point it out, Fernando often hasn't had the car to win. You know, he's won two, but he could have easily won four. I think if you, you're a Formula One fan and you watched the last 15 laps of the Brazilian Grand Prix where he held off, we had our chief engineer who's been in the sport for years. He's never seen anybody drive like that. The management of the tires, the, the management of the battery, fuel levels, knowing how to take a different line to keep him just masterclass of skill. You know, it reminded you of watching Lionel Messi play or Michael Jordan play. That's the Fernando Alonso level today. Okay. Last one is, is kind of a two-part question. If we zoom out and we go to 2030, right? So six, seven years down the line here. How many Formula One races are on the calendar? Would you say 22 this year, 24 next year? What do you think it is in 2030? 25. And you think that's where they'll cap it? I just think you can't. There's just a limit. You're seeing the teams now. We've done five races in six weeks. And this isn't, you know, one in Cleveland, one in Boston, one in Chicago. This is, you know, Austin, Mexico, Brazil, here, and Abu Dhabi. Yeah. You just, these are human beings. So you, you got a limit. And I think that that's, I, I mean, I think even 24, we're going to find is going to be a real stretch. Yeah. I, I also think there's a, yeah, human limit, also logistic limit. More than how many races the, the, what, what, where my thoughts are is, is how perhaps the, the format of the championship, the events itself could evolve, could change. Right now we have a, a global championship of 24 races and you crown a, uh, a world champion driver and a world uh, champion uh, manufacturer. You know, as as we add perhaps new countries, new races, format could evolve. Maybe you have, uh, you know, within still the confines of a global championship, three different regional championships within the, the, the global one. The, the, the racing format itself, uh, you know, Formula One has been experimenting with uh, sprint race weekend this year already. So you know, evolution on that front, more than number of races, I would, I would say is, is the questions that Formula One will be asking itself. Last one, admittedly, this might be more of a question for Jefferson, but Liberty Media, you mentioned it earlier, is promoting this race, right? They don't typically do that. They usually let, you know, the other promoters do it and they essentially license the sport. In 2030, there's 25 races. How many of those do you think they're promoting? Good question. Three. What's the logic behind three? I think if you're smart and you have capital and you have the ability to choose where to invest that, you can choose the right events like this one. This race would never have happened without Liberty and doing what they've done. But it, for all the reasons we've talked about Why? Today, because no one would have laid out $500 million to make it happen? Correct. 
that would have not been a normal thing for somebody to do. The risk reward, you have a background in that, you would have kind of weighed that and said, wait, but if you have a bigger interest in growing the whole sport, then you can do that. And maybe you don't make money, but if you grow the sport long-term, so your economic interest is aligned with the broader base of the sport, not just one particular event. I imagine there'll be a few other opportunities like that. And you got to balance the model. I don't think you want to go on. You've got promoters that have been doing it for many years and they're very, very good at it. Why would you want to disrupt that? That works. But if you have new opportunities in them, certainly between now and seven years, this sport will change hugely. If you just look at seven years ago, yeah. we were having this discussion seven years ago. We wouldn't, all the things we're talking about probably wouldn't be on the table. So, and the other thing I think people underestimate and is, you know, live engaging sports just continues to become more and more important. So what seems like a lot now or a big deal now is not in a few years will seem small. And, and I think for everyone is definitely, Jack, I, I, as I said earlier, I think the key is fan engagement. I think you got to, that's the next level. You know, you really get the economics right, the structure right, budget cap right, the team's starting to be economically viable. Now how do you make sure that people really, really feel part of this? That's going to be key to keep growing the sport. Yeah, and some continuity around that. Yeah, but but as you, one of the great things is you're going. Imagine you know the Premier League's for years been trying to have the 39th game. They cannot play. They can't play a single competitive Premier League match outside of England. Can't do it. We have a huge event. We are going everywhere. So we just have to be really good at activating locally and making the local people feel good about it, as well as we're not to mention really utilizing. Social media, we've done that a big way. We started with TikTok. It's one of our partners. We do so much fun stuff on TikTok. And you see, if you read the comments, these are 15, 16, 8 channels engaged and admitted admit response and they're going to stay fans. Yeah. I always talk about the t- even just the time zone changes of these different races. <laughs> it's like we came from the East Coast here. It's a three-hour time difference. And I'm like tired, not, uh, not able to stay awake for practice. <laughs> and the drivers are coming from Europe or wherever else. Right. It's crazy. If you think that in seven days time, they'll yeah. be racing in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. 12-hour time difference. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah. It's, That's got to be the worst one of the year, I would imagine. One week after 12-hour time difference. Right. So even getting the equipment there alone. Is like, yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. I hope you guys have some good luck this weekend. And uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. I know that you guys will definitely be back here in America for other races and stuff. So uh, this was fun. And thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Joe.